Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. As we are all living and understand and know, we've had a a massive lockdown over the whole world, actually. But just recently, we're going to, we are living in a kind of restoration process towards some sort of what people are now saying is a new normality, whatever that means. It's interesting the way people are responding. Some are fearful and staying indoors. Some are partying on the beach and in towns and in, um, in, on uh, parks. There's others who have growing cynicism and contempt for governments, fellow citizens, who seem to be putting everybody at risk. And then there are just others who are trying their hardest to respond in the best way possible to help themselves and others return to normal. You know, what the government is learning, what we all are learning is restoration is a very difficult thing to navigate. You know this, I believe that the church should be the epicenter of effectual restoration. You know, Dictory says about restoration, it's the action of returning something to a former owner, place or condition. Years ago, I came came to my attention that someone had moved away to another city was still given to the church. It's always a nice thing to see. But I eventually met that person and asked, why are you still giving to the church? And they said, I want you to know, Colin, that you and the church was the place that I found restoration. I renewed my faith in God and his people. Over many years, numbers of people have said the same and similar things. We should be the people of restoration. It is the heart of the gospel that we are a people of restoration. We're preaching through one of the epic books of the Old Testament. It tells how a group of people filled with prophetic promises migrated a thousand miles from Babylon to Jerusalem to build the house of God. Last Sunday, I preached on the devastating effects sustained and increasing opposition had on the people of God. The opponents had triumphed and the community began to taste the bitterness of high hopes disappointed. The God-given enterprise totally frustrated. How differently things had turned out from the expectation with which the company had set out from Babylon. The cost of hopes and dreams not coming to reality made the people of God just give up. You know, I find it uh, heartbreaking sometimes how many people are sitting in churches up and down the land who had started out with amazing expectation, but their hopes and their dreams not come into reality and just made kind of hope deferred, making their heart grow sick. They've just given up. I'm talking to someone the other day, a great leader, great preacher, just said, Colin, I think I've just lost confidence. And you know, even in this pandemic that we're having, there have been numbers of people actually who have just lost confidence. I finished my sermon last week in Ezra 4 amongst all that devastation, all that failure, with a glimmer of hope. 
Ezra 4.24 says this. So the work of the, of the temple of God in Jerusalem stopped. That's the bad news. And it remained at a standstill until the second year of King Darius of Persia. What is the glimmer of hope? The glimmer of hope is this, until another approximately 12 years was, were going to go by before a new king came to power, King Darius. His coming to power started a chain of events that were crucial to restoring the people of God to fulfill their destiny. Now, some people who are stuck can sometimes be restored when major change takes place in society. And for the people of God in Ezra's time, it was the disruptive change of a world leader that seemed to be the significant factor in the restoration process. You know, we're living through massive disruption of this world pandemic. I just want us to be aware that there are restorative opportunities we have, even in this difficult phase of world history. In the wake of King Darius becoming king, we read in Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, Haggai and Zechariah, son of Idu, prophesied to the Jews in Judea and Jerusalem. It goes on to say this, they prophesied in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. In this new political world with this new ruler, we see the hand of God on two of his servants who were going to be key to the restoration of the people. You know, I speculate sometimes and I wonder how many other people had tried to get the people of God back to building the temple over those 12 years. I would suspect quite a few people. In verse 2, says this, Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, and Joshua, son of Zahodadak, responded by starting to gain to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them and helped them. Hey, what an amazing thing. One verse on a massive success. You know, that's my heart's desire. I preach one verse and everything changes. How many of us would love to see such a quick and instant fruit to our ministry? But you know, there's a backstory through to this restoration. And I'm, this morning I want to look at that backstory, how the prophets achieved such amazing response. So often when we read the Bible, it's a bit like reading Acts. We could read it all the way through, I don't know, in two or three hours, maybe less, and yet it was over decades, actually, that it's talking about. And sometimes as we read it very quickly, we forget that there's just significant periods of time between each episode. We'll also see that it was, not, that it was two-way traffic, not just what the prophets said and did, but the very important nature of the response of those who are in need of restoration. You know, my prayer this morning, that those of you who need, in need of restoration this would greatly help you. I also want to pray that as a church, we become the centre of the restoration of many more hurting and defeated people. So the first thing we see is how, did, how the prophets understood the reality of how different people we were, were feeling. We will see that some were over, overly aware and condemned by their own present reality. And others were living in some form of new unreality. 
unable or unwilling to face up to the consequences of potentially poor decisions made in the face of defeat and disappointment. You know, I've met many people who will live in both those worlds that just feel a total failure, know that they're a failure, and uh, that's, they are so aware of it, it just paralyzes them. And I've talked to many others who have kind of formed a new form of reality, just unwilling to face up to the consequences of their own poor decisions. I need to have a look at, the need to have not one approach which fits all is crucial. We will look at two individuals then a whole bunch of other people who collectively made the same decision. So let's start with Joshua. His dream was to stand in the new temple dressed for the occasion. He'd gone all the way from Babylon thinking about how it was going to be. You can imagine him picturing it day by day in his mind, standing there. He had read Exodus 28:2, which describes the clothes that he would wear. It says, make sacred garments for Aaron and his descendants that are glorious and beautiful. Have them make garments for Aaron that, Aaron that will distinguish him as a priest set apart from my service. Joshua, he was thinking of that day, dressed in all this apparel, standing before God, in the presence of God, praying for his people. The reality of what he thought about himself now was totally different. And uh, what was going to be a significant, uh, significant, significant occasion that dignified him, showed the purity he had in all these garments, he now felt a total disaster, a total sinner. So that's Joshua. That was his reality. That's the way he was seeing things. Then we have Zerubbabel. And... Uh, in Zechariah 3.1, we see how basically, uh, sorry, Zechariah 4, we see how Zerubbabel basically saw himself. He was the grandson of King Jehoiakim of Judah, and therefore a descendant of King David. He was also a very gifted leader. And when he crashed, he had to deal with all these expectations. And we can see why he ended up despising all that he achieved. You see, his reality was someone who had come from a very confident position, understanding his position in society, understanding his heritage. Hey, David, the greatest king ever. And now he was a wreck. All his dreams had gone, his confidence had gone. He now just felt totally useless. And so Joshua felt guilty, felt soiled, felt shame. Zerubbabel just felt a wreck. And then there was a load of other people who had given up any hope of building the temple and had concentrated on survival and building their own homes and farms. And the prophet Haggai had to face these people up to a different reality says in Haggai 1.5, this is what the Lord of the heavens army says. Look at what's happened to you. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you're not satisfied. You drink, but you are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but cannot keep warm. 
your wages disappear as though they were putting them in pockets filled with holes. You hoped for rich harvests, but you were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, it blew away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of the heaven's armies. I've just lost my notes. That's why I've just... Uh, um, Uh, taking my time now just to find them again. Sorry about this. I'm just going to have to stop for a second and uh, recap my notes. It's most embarrassing when you're on Zoom and you lose your place. It's uh, so. I think I'm there now. Sorry about that. So basically, the people they had to be shown that they had actually formed a new reality, and that new reality was God doesn't actually want us to build the house of God. So we're going to build our own homes. And uh, they'd started to plant fields, etc. But the new reality that Haggai wanted to show them was that actually they were actually become subsistence farmers. They might have a nice home, but nothing was working for them on the farm. And Haggai wanted to bring this reality to them that living the way they were was making them poor. So basically, they were the kind of three different. Um, things that needed restoring. Joshua, Zerubbabel, and then the people. And they all needed restoring in different ways. And I want to show you the specific ways that these people were restored. And then two things that were general to both. So the first thing for Joshua, you see Joshua in Zechariah 3.3 says, Joshua's clothing was filthy, filthy as he stood before the angel. So the angel said to the other standing there, take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Joshua, he said, see, I have taken away your sin. And now I'm giving you these fine clothes. And I said, they should also place a clean turban on your head. So they put a clean priestly turban on his head and dressed him in new clothes while the angel of the Lord stood before him. You see, for the restoration of Joshua, God was dealing with his sin dealing with the fact that the clothes that should have been clean and pure and perfect, standing before a pure God, now needed to be, now were dirty and they needed to be taken away. They needed, his sin needed to be dealt with. And he needed to be recommissioned. He, he felt like, I can't do it anymore. I can't stand before the Lord. And it says in Zechariah 3.6, then the angel of the Lord spoke very solemnly. To Joshua and said, This is what the Lord of the heaven army says. If you follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you will be given authority over my temple and its courtyards. I will let you walk among those others standing here. Hey, he was going to be recommissioned, given authority over the temple. And then Zerubbabel. 
What are the specific words saying to a broken leader who has walked past a foundation stone that cried out, you are useless? Zechariah 4, 6 says this. This is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It's not by force, not by my strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of the heaven's armies. Nothing, not even a mighty mountain will stand in Zerubbabel's way. He will become a level plain before him. And when Zerubbabel sets the final stone of the temple in place, the people will shout, may God bless it. May God bless it. Zerubbabel is the one who laid the foundation of the temple and he will complete it. You know what? I want to shout, Amen. And then I want to say, God is good all of the time. And all of the time, God is good. Amen. What a remarkable thing. The very thing that was going to shout out, you are useless, is now going to be the foundation where the temple is going to be completed. And it's Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the man who will lay capstone, the top to it. And then Haggai had to say to the people something slightly different. Verse 7 of Haggai 1. This is what the Lord of the heaven armies says. Look at what's happening to you now. Go up to the hills. Bring down timber and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. Interesting, this is a challenge to change their priorities. Different approach, but very applicable for the situation. So I hope you get the point. We need to have great prophetic wisdom in helping restore people, tailored to the individual. So often in churches, I hear almost the same rhetoric, which is, in a sense, making people like a self-help program. This was individually tailored to individual needs then there were some similar things the first one is this is faith the prophets had faith in almighty god and with that faith that the leaders and the people would respond and achieve in every situation we who we restore people we must come with faith and not condemnation or words that simply imply self-help you know honestly believe this I have often more faith for people than they have for themselves. And that faith is part of the catalyst to them being restored. But the second thing is this, that you need to work alongside people. When I'm restoring people, I make sure they succeed by working with them step by step as they take on more responsibility. I make sure that they begin to feel the pleasure. Of success you know there's something pleasurable about doing okay you know when I finished preaching even though I messed up just a bit earlier lost my notes on my screen you know the pleasure of doing okay the pleasure of success and Zechariah and Joshua they'd been robbed of that the people had been robbed of that and so it's so important it's not just words but action we make it easy. Carry two bricks if, out of the three to help build. That's, that helps them. Even if they only just carry the one, it's not putting pressure on them to do more than they can. But come on, let's, I'll carry two for you. That means we've got three bricks on this wall. So much better than just looking at one. And this is exactly what the prophets did. Ezra, Ezra 5 verse 2. Zerubbabel and Joshua responded 
by starting again to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them and helped them. Okay, so quickly to bring this to a conclusion, I've concentrated on the role of those helping restore people, but it's not one-way traffic. And I want to conclude with how Joshua, Zerubbabel and the people responded. And there's three things I want to bring out. The first is this, they responded with great humility. You know, Zechariah was probably a very young prophet. The two leaders showed amazing humility in letting this young man speak into their lives and also to integrate them part of the new leadership team. It takes great humility to let other people speak into your life, especially when you're feeling damaged. And I just want to encourage you that God blesses the humble. The second thing is this. There seemed to be a lack of cynicism. One of the great killers of being helped is cynicism. It diverts, undermines faith. It seems that these people heard the word of the Lord and acted upon it. There was a, some purity in the way that they acted upon it. And the third thing is this, they took the plunge. Haggai 1.14 said, the Lord sparked the enthusiasm of Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and he sparked the enthusiasm of Joshua, the high priest, and the enthusiasm of the whole remnant of God's people, and they began to work on the house of God. You know, this is where the rubber hits the road. In the end, you have to have another go. We believe in giving people second, third, fourth billion chances. But there's a world of difference between having the chance and being brave enough to take it. You know, that's why I keep saying, well done, well done. Even for the smallest, bravest, restorative steps. I'm so often on my phone, on my text, when I see someone having a go, doing something, especially if I know They've been hurt in the past and have lost confidence. We need to be encouraging every small step. I love it. So the Lord sparked enthusiasm. This is God's work. You know, and I want to pray as I finish in a moment for all those who are struggling and discounted themselves, that the Lord would spark enthusiasm in you. You know, it's the Lord's work. It's his good pleasure. But before I do that, I want to see how all this worked out in John chapter 1. You see, there was a reality. John 1.10 says this, that Jesus came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognise him. And he even came to his own people and they rejected him. That's the kind of microcosm of the rejection of the whole world to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe, the lover of our souls, the God who we are created in the image of, we have rejected. That is the reality. We have sinned. We have fallen massively short of the glory of God. And in verse 14 of John, it says, so the word became human. This is the remedy. And made his home amongst us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. 
and we have seen his glory, his only glory of the Son. You know, the God who created us is the God who came amongst us. And it says this, for all who received him, they had the right to become children of God. You see, that's the response. The reality, the remedy, and then the response. I just want to encourage us. How are we going to respond? How are we going to respond to the God who wants to put enthusiasm in, in our hearts? God, I want to pray now. I want to pray for anybody who feels beaten down, anybody who feels a failure. I want to pray in the name of Jesus. Would you put enthusiasm in our hearts? I pray, God, restore our souls. Lord God, I titled this The Restoration of a Soul. And Lord, I want to pray now, even if one soul needs restoring who's listening to this, I want to pray in Jesus' name that you will be restored. And I want to pray anybody who has not made that step of responding to the creator of the universe, coming to live and die amongst us, rising again, seated at the right hand of the Father, praying constantly for our salvation. God, I pray, I pray that I give my life to you now, in Jesus' name. So God bless you all. Sorry I lost my notes in the middle there, but I do hope you kept pace with what I was speaking of. Bless you.